you to turn to your Bibles, please, to Hebrews chapter 6. If you would stand in the honor of reading God's word. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits, for it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to be cursed, and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, Yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you, should, as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. And so when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for another day of life. We thank you that we can come and worship you corporately and that we may have another day of glorifying you. Lord, we thank you for our faith that you've given us, and we thank you, Lord, for your word. As your word tells us, faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Lord, we thank you for Cherokee Baptist Church that we're able to come and worship you individually, but also corporately, Unlike what we heard of 74 out of 78 groups in Afghanistan that have never heard your word, Lord, may we 
never take your word for granted. So, Lord, we've read your word, and we now we ask you corporately to be with your servant, Pastor Tim, as he comes and teaches us your word. Speak through him mightily. Give him transparency and words to, of understanding of what you would have him to say. And, Lord, we're reminded that in the Gospel of, of Matthew in 16, when Jesus asked his disciples, who do men say that I am? And then he asked them specifically, who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. And Lord, we here at Cherokee Baptist believe that, that Christ is the son of God. And then Jesus said to Peter, flesh and blood has not revealed that to you, but my father in heaven. And so Lord, again, be with Pastor Tim as he speaks the word, but Lord, may we not depend on our flesh and blood May you reveal your word to us. In Christ's name we pray. Well, what a privilege it is to be here today. It's always a privilege to be able to have God's word and more than that it's a privilege to be able to teach God's word but it's also a privilege to be here among you today especially on this occasion I think I'll just stand up here uh, it may be too big of a chair for me uh, but uh, it's a it's a privilege to be here with you today uh, this is really uh, a privilege to be able to serve as an associate pastor at any church and I know that you know, this is an answer to, you know, for me and Elizabeth, seven years of prayer at least on our behalf. So we're grateful for the love that this congregation has shown us already. We're uh, very thankful to be here. We're excited about the new friendships that I know that we will be forming. And it's a very good thing to be with you all today. And so give us patience if, as we try to learn all the names uh, as far as that goes. But when we look at this passage that we're going to be looking at today, Hebrews chapter 6, it's one of the many warning passages of Scripture, and so let's just open up with a word of prayer on this end and ask God's blessing as we seek to understand His Word. Lord, we thank You for the privilege it is to come and gather together as fellow believers, Lord. Uh, thank You for giving us Your words, which are life to us, Lord. We pray that You bless our time here today, help, us, help protect us from error, that we would learn great things from Your Word, Lord. Thank you for all that you do. We thank you for your sacrifice on the cross on our behalf. In your son's name I pray. Amen. Now, as I've said, uh, Hebrews 6 is one of the many warning passages of Scripture which are directed at professing Christians. So, in some sense, I that may sound a bit strange. I, I know that we're used to speaking of warning passages in relation to non-believers. So, I mean, unless you're a universalist, which is a person who believes that hell will finally be empty or no one will end up in hell, unless you're a universalist, then you typically have little problem with the idea that the Bible warns non-believers to repent of their sins and to believe the good news or face eternal wrath. So that's a very uh, standard kind of impulse that we have, especially as conservative Christians. Uh, we understand the need for the scriptures to come and to warn non-believers to repent 
and believe the good news of the gospel. Yet, as you read the Bible, the Bible doesn't uh, simply uh, contain warning passages directed towards non-believers. It also contains warning passages which are uh, directed at professing Christians. So this is one of the many uh, passages of Scripture that warns uh, professing Christians to examine themselves, to see whether they're in the faith. I mean, the, the language like this is all throughout the Scriptures. Uh, there is the sad reality that many in the last day will say, Lord, Lord. Uh, so there will be many people in the last day who uh, claim to know God, but in the last day God will declare to them, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Depart from me, I never knew you, workers of lawlessness. So uh, because of this sobering reality that in the last day many people will be self-deceived, um, we have to be confronted with the reality that uh, there are warning passages in Scripture which encourage us to have a scriptural hope of eternal life. So uh, one of the things that we want to do is we want to do justice to these type, this type of teaching that we find in the Bible. Now, in my experience, one of the most offensive things that you can possibly do is to question the legitimacy of someone's experience. So uh, we we live in a sentimental sort of society where... Uh, it's very unpopular to tell anyone that they're wrong, that their uh, experience might not be true. So, you know, if you have a little kid who says that he went up to heaven and back, and uh, if you're the sort of person who says, well, if I, I'm not sure that that was exactly what happened, uh, you seem to be declaring things that are unlawful to other, uh, even to speak about. So uh, I, I don't know that I think that that's what happened. If you're the sort of person who comes along and questions his experience, then you're seen as sort of a mean and judgmental person uh, and just sort of a divisive person. Uh, now, clearly there are tactful ways to go about questioning someone's experience and there are untactful ways and uh, I think we want to do so in a gracious way and that's something that we see, especially in this passage itself. You see uh, the author of Hebrews uh, encouraging uh, the people he's writing to, the Hebrews in particular, to question their experience, and he does so in a very gracious way, in a very uh, firm way, though. So uh, if you live in the sort of society we live in, though, we desperately need this kind of warning that the author of Hebrews provides for us. So if, as you're looking at this passage, I'm going to see if I can make it about as simple as I possibly can make it. There's a lot that's going on in this passage. There's issues of relationships between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. There's uh, some teaching about Melchizedek that I think I'll try to leave till uh, next week, I think. Uh, but uh, uh, there, there's uh, many, many different issues here that are all combining to form uh, one warning. Uh, so there's two, two, um, two main things that are happening in, in this passage. The passage starts with a message of warning, and then it moves on to a message of assurance. And so these things often go hand in hand. Uh, you want to warn people against having false assurance, but then you want them to have the right sort of assurance. And so uh, if you just think about the way the passage works, the first half is a warning, the second half is a, a scriptural proper grounds of assurance. So we're going to try to talk about all these things today. Now, what is the situation? So he's obviously writing, uh, writing his words in relationship to a certain situation. You see that in the beginning of Hebrews chapter 1. So uh, Hebrews, chap or Hebrews chapter 6 verse 1 starts with the words, therefore, let us leave behind the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. So you have this admonition to move on to maturity. Well, why should they move on to maturity? What's the basis uh, for his 
instruction at this point. Well, as you look there, you see it begins with therefore. So whenever you see therefore, you're supposed to ask, what is it therefore? So you move back. You think, what was said previously to that? And that's just something that often is strange when you when you think about the way the Bible's divided up into chapters. Oftentimes you have chapters starting with therefore, and that's a natural transition word. So you wonder, why didn't you go back a little bit when you started the chapter? But uh, needless to say, uh, this one starts with therefore, uh, and he, he's res- he, he uh, is addressing this warning to uh, his congregation, and it begins really in 5.11. So what is the situation? Well, 5.11 says this. About this we have much to say, and it's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. And he goes on to say, For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. So the situation here is that think you're dealing with a congregation that has in some sense grown complacent and so the text says there uh, the hebrews had become dull of hearing now about this time uh, the author of hebrews says many of them should be becoming teachers but they're still in need of milk instead of solid food so this is the result of the fact that they are unskilled in the word of righteousness so as a result of this reality the author of hebrews gives this twofold admonition. First, let us leave the elementary, and second, let us go on to maturity. So maturity in this passage is described as moving past the elementary doctrine of Christ. So when you think about this twofold command, the twofold command involves leaving behind and moving on. Now, in this context, when you talk about leaving behind the elementary doctrine of Christ and moving on, you, you need to be careful because in this context, it doesn't imply a complete forsaking of the elementary doctrine, but implies a desire to learn more than the bare minimum, if you understand what I'm saying. So uh, just to give you an example, if a person has a divorce, uh, Typically, what happens in that sort of situation is a man leaves behind his old wife and he moves on to his new wife. And so there's a sharp sort of uh, separation that happens at that point. The covenant is broken. He moves on to the new wife, uh, assuming that he gets remarried in that instance. Uh, But that isn't the sort of uh, leaving behind and moving on the author of Hebrews has in mind in this passage. Uh, There's a sense in which we never completely leave behind and move on past the elementary doctrine that he's going to describe our entire uh, the entire christian life is built on a certain foundation and so when you look at the passage itself the kind of leaving behind and the kind of moving on that he's talking about is worded in the language of building upon a foundation so the foundation has already been laid but one of one of the things that you need to be aware of is the fact that when you build a foundation you don't build a foundation simply so that you can stare at your wonderful foundation you understand i mean you build a foundation so that you can put a building on top of it and so in a similar way the foundation that the author of hebrews is going to describe is a foundation that's meant to lead to certain things namely maturity in this passage So what is the elementary doctrine of Christ, which is the foundation for the Christian life, which we should be building upon? 
well, this elementary doctrine of Christ that the author of Hebrews describes, uh, first of all, he describes uh, in terms of it being a gracious gift of God. So he, he starts out his discussion of this foundation by saying that we should uh, leave behind the elementary doctrine of Christ, go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God and of the instructions about washing, the laying on of hands, the resurrections from the dead, and eternal judgment. Now, these are all aspects of this foundation which the author of Hebrews is trying to tell us are foundational elements of the Christian life. Now, we never move beyond these things in the sense of laying them aside, not needing them, not needing to remind ourselves of these things. But salvation involves more than just simply knowing that we're saved by grace through faith, for instance, and that it's probably important to get baptized. If you look at this uh, phrase, it says the instruction about various washings. That word there is baptismon, which we get our English word baptism. So well, the, the basic elements of the Christian life involve repentance from dead works and faith towards God, uh, un- some sort of understanding about the importance of baptism, uh, this uh, phrase about the laying on of hands, that probably refers to receiving people into membership or appointing people into office. Uh, this word about the resurrection from the dead, that obviously uh, Paul picks up in 1 Corinthians 15, without the, resu- without the resurrection from the dead, our faith is futile, and we are still in our sins. So these are very foundational elements of the Christian life. We're saved from eternal judgment by faith and, and repentance uh, towards God. Baptism is the uh, original act of uh, inclusion into the membership of God's people. So you, you see all these basic elements that the Hebrews know, and the author of Hebrews is encouraging them to move beyond these basic foundational doctrines. So build upon the foundation is what he's saying. Uh, Pursue maturity in the Christian life. So there are many Christians who think of the whole of the Christian life as simply involving knowing that you're saved from eternal judgment by grace and not by works and knowing that this salvation will one day result in our resurrection from the dead. In the meantime, we should probably get baptized and join the church. So that that is, uh, in many cases, the experience of many Christians, especially, particularly in the South. Uh, And what you want to say is the, cer- the Christian life certainly doesn't involve knowing less than those things, but there's certainly much more to the Christian life than just knowing you're saved by grace through faith and joining the church and get baptized. And so, I mean, there's, there's more to it than that. Uh, so when you think about the need to mature in the, li- uh, in the Christian life, one of the things that you want to say is that ma- uh, mature or maturation in the Christian life is not an optional part of the Christian life but a necessary part of the Christian life. So living things grow. And that's a simple, consistent teaching of the Bible. In one of the sermons I think I sent the search committee, I gave this example of this YouTube video that I watched recently of a little girl named Sadie who didn't want her little brother to grow up. And so I watched this video and uh, see this little girl and she's crying, like bawling her eyes out and her little brother's there smiling right beside her. And, and, uh, She's very distressed because she doesn't want her little baby brother to grow up. She's, you know, she's weeping and uh, I don't want him to grow up. He's so cute. I love his cute little head, you know, and then she hugs him and she uh, she wants him to stay an infant forever. Well, now, despite the fact that this little girl doesn't want her baby to grow up, that's just not the way the world works. Right. I mean, that's just not the way the world works. Living things grow. Um, So no matter what what I desire to happen, if God has made a dead sinner alive, that sinner will be growing. 
And so that's something that's very important to point out and it's foundational to this passage. So when you, when you are dealing with the sort of situation where, as the author of Hebrews is dealing with, where you're looking at a group of people who may not be maturing at the expected rate, uh, at the rate you may expect them to be maturing, then either two things could happen. One, they're not a Christian. Or two, maybe they've grown complacent for a period of time and they need to be warned about the danger of complacency. And so that's what you find in this passage. Uh, I mean, just looking at the situation on the outside, you have no idea who you're talking to. I mean, you have no idea, especially if uh, your congregation in general is growing complacent. You have no idea uh, the individual circumstances of every single individual. You, you don't want to make a dogmatic pronouncement either way, but the sad reality is that there will be many people in the last day who are self-deceived. So if there's many people in the last day who are self-deceived, then you want to be warning them against the danger of stagnating in the Christian life. So what we see here is this passage involves a warning directed towards a congregation of professing Christians encouraging them to mature in the Christian life. Now, the next thing that we see as you go through the passage, Hebrews 6.3, he's just encouraged his congregation to leave behind the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. And Hebrews 6.3 says, and this we will do if God permits. So when we think about growth in the Christian life, we need to remember that the growth in the Christian life is growth in grace. The kind of message that the author of Hebrews is giving is not a do better, try harder sort of message. It's the sort of message that says, and this we will do if God permits. Uh, God is a giver of life. Before coming to know the Lord, we are all dead in our trespasses of sin. We walk according to the course of the world, according to the spirit that works in the uh, sons of disobedience. We were haters of God. We were without hope in the world. Before coming to know the Lord, we're totally unable to live a life that's pleasing to God in any way uh, of our own initiative. We have no power to fight sin and pursue righteousness. God has to do a work in our life, transforming a dead sinner into a, a living sinner. And so if God has done this, then uh, God is a catalyst which brings about spiritual growth. So when we pursue spiritual growth in the Christian life, we're asking God to transform us. Uh, Philippians 1, 6 says we're confident that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete that uh, work in the day of Christ. Uh, as we grow in the Christian life, it's growing in depending on God to uh, change us from the inside out. And if he has initiated a process of growth, he will complete that process of growth. So we trust him to do what he's promised to do. Now, if you were once an enemy of God and he graciously gives you new life and the Holy Spirit has come to live inside of you, you ought to be growing. You ought to be growing because no one born of God, 1 John 3, 9 says, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning for God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. So one of the things that we see is that when you talk about encouraging people about the necessity of pursuing growth, it's not as if you're encouraging them to pat themselves on the back for doing better and being one of those, you know, uh, strong Christians, you know, obedient Christians who of their own initiative and they're of their own willpower, they're able to uh, be an example Christian in, in the Christian life. You know, it's, it's nothing along those lines. It's simply a reality of you're encouraging them to rely on God to help change and transform their life. And if, and if you're the sort of person who sees no evidence of God being at work in your life, then you have a right and a responsibility to 
uh, be very concerned at that point. So the nature of the warning that the author of Hebrews gives us is that it's dangerous to toy with sin at any level. When you get to Hebrews 6, 4 through 6, you see that it's impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. So that's, when you think about uh, the passage as a whole, you're just given a warning, and that's the warning. Now, I don't know that many of us probably warn people in that sort of way. We may not use the exact language that the author of Hebrews uses there. Uh, I, I think in some sense, we're probably scared of speaking the way that the author of the Hebrews speaks because we're, uh, at first glance, it may appear as if he's teaching that it's possible to lose one's salvation. So if you simply read these verses in isolation from the context, in isolation from the biblical teaching as a whole, it may at first glance appear as if he's saying that there are people who were once Christians and then they uh, decided they don't want to be Christians anymore and therefore they have moved themselves beyond uh, an ability to turn, return again to the Lord so they've lost their salvation and they're, uh, no matter what they do at that point, there's no hope for them anymore. I mean, if you just read the words in a sort of a, just in isolation, if you just take that quote and cut it out of your Bible and uh, put it on your refrigerator, you may come away uh, thinking that that's what he's teaching. And I think at some levels that's an understandable mistake. So when you think about what the, the kind of language that's attributed to this group of people, you see that there is a group of people who, uh, one, have once been enlightened, two, have tasted the heavenly gift, three, who've shared in the Holy Spirit, four, have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the power of the age to come. So you have these people who are described as uh, having some sort of enlightenment, who have tasted some sort of heavenly gift, they shared in the Holy Spirit, uh, they've seen the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. So th that, at uh, first glance, may be appearing to talk about believers at that point who um, become saved and then reject God's word and fall away and then lose their salvation. So I think that's an understandable uh, mistake to make. But I, I really don't think that's, that's what it's talking about at all. And in fact, if that's what it's talking about, it would contradict a lot of the teaching of the rest of the uh, book of Hebrews and the rest of the Bible itself. I think what it's saying is very simple. Don't, don't toy around with sin. Now, um, there will be many people, there, there are many people who hang around with the people of God and experience many of the blessings of being in close proximity to God's word and God's people who will be rejected on the last day. So there's many people who enjoy the blessings of being involved in a community of believers uh, who are nonetheless self-deceived. And so that I, we, we, in a certain sense, we're all going to be judged on the basis of the revelation that we receive. So as you read through the Gospels, uh, consistent uh, teaching of Scripture is that the more revelation we, see, we receive, the harsher uh, punishment that we will receive in the last day. So uh, Jesus says to the citizens of Jerusalem, woe to you. Uh, it'll be more tolerable for the citizens of Sodom and Gomorrah than it'll be for you in the day of judgment. Why? Well, because they had seen Jesus Christ living and walking among them. They got the uh, most um, powerful demonstration of uh, 
the person and work of Christ that anyone in the history of the world has got. And so uh, the people of Jerusalem who've seen Jesus, who've seen the blessings that accompanied his ministry, you know, if you think about Jesus' ministry, they, they saw him heal people. They knew that a notable miracle had been done. They saw that, uh, you know, he wasn't just faking this, that he had healed people and that he had uh, uh, had the power to cast out demons. They saw all the signs. They saw his... Uh, that his words were gracious, and, and what do they do? They attribute his words to the words of demons. They said, uh, you cast out demons by the power of Beelzebub, the prince of demons. They said that his actions had a satanic origin. So in that sense, they had uh, experienced many of the blessings of seeing Jesus Christ, and they had rejected him. Now, if you continue, therefore, to listen to the truth, truth and experience the blessings of being around believers but refuse to repent of your sins and trust in christ alone for your only hope of eternal life then you may come to a point in time where god judicially hands you over to your rebellion and you no longer experience the conviction of the holy spirit so every time you feel guilty about your sin that is god graciously uh, giving you conviction from the holy spirit that you, that is uh that you need to respond to because one day you may get so hardened uh, in your rebellion that you never feel that again. I mean, that's the reality uh, of the teaching of the author of Hebrews. That's why as you read through the book of Hebrews, what is the continual message that the author of Hebrews gives us? Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as they did in the rebellion. So what, what is the day of salvation? Today is the day of salvation. Don't put off the day of salvation until tomorrow. If God's working with you today, if you hear his voice today, respond today, right? So it's dangerous to toy with sin at any level. I think um, it's very easy to think that we can handle sin, that we're in control, that a little sin never hurt anyone, that maybe we can repent tomorrow, that I know that there's some big areas in my life where... I'm not giving them over to God. I'm not turning from my sin. I'm not turning from it. But one day I will. Uh, maybe next week I'll repent. Uh, maybe a month I'll repent. Maybe uh, I, I know I need to repent, and I know that I should repent. Um, but you know, it, I'll repent tomorrow. The message of the, the book of Hebrews is today is the day of salvation. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. You may not be given tomorrow. You know, what is your life? Uh, you don't know that you're going to have tomorrow. You don't know that God will graciously be convicting you tomorrow if you hear his voice today do not harden your hearts now some people if you if you speak this way uh, the immediate response to that sort of thing is well what if what if god has stopped working with me for instance you know uh, I, I think there's many people who have um, maybe they have some sort of big sins in their life that they're not dealing with and they're not repenting of and then you, you talk about them, you warn them, today is the day of salvation, today is uh, the day of repentance, repent today, uh, because you don't know that tomorrow you'll even feel convicted anymore. And if you start speaking that way, then immediately you'll have a person who is uh, experiencing some sort of conviction from God at that point in their life, saying, well, what, you know, am I hopeless? You know, I, I don't feel like I have any power to overcome sin in my life today. Uh, I don't know if... Uh, have I moved to a point where God will no longer work with me, that God will no longer convict me of sin? Uh, am I beyond redemption? People will ask sort of questions like that. And how do you respond to them? You say, well, the reason why you're coming and talking to me is because you feel convicted of your sins. So if you feel convicted of your sins, beg God to change your heart. Beg God, uh, 
throw yourself on your hands and knees and beg God to please uh, do for you what you cannot do on your own. Change your heart, give you, uh, give you new habits, give you new affections, give you new desires, give you new, uh, give you new loves, help you to hate sin and learn to love Christ. So if you're a person in here today who's experiencing conviction of sin, I tell you to deal with it. Like beg, beg God to change your heart in that way. Now, that's true at the individual level, but if you think about how you would attempt to apply that sort of warning to a congregation, well, we don't want to be the sort of church that allows professing believers to feel comfortable in their high-handed rebellion against the Lord. I mean, we clearly want to be a hospital for the sick, but we want to be a hospital for sick people who know they're sick and who want help. So we, want, we, we don't want to be the sort of church that winks at sin, that laughs at sin, that... Um, you know, has a certain level of toleration for sin. Well, maybe we'll only get upset if we have big sins and little sins. We don't care about little sins. The, the sad reality is that little sins lead to big sins and big sins lead to bigger sins. When the minister falls, for instance, he doesn't fall far. And often you see a pastor who has an affair on his wife. Uh, it may appear to come out of nowhere, but it really was a, a long series of choices that um, just neglect that has happened over a long period of time that's culminated in this action which seems to be um, the natural progression of the way things have been going. But that's the way that sin works. And, and so as you're thinking about the way that this passage works in general, sin has a hardening effect. Now, there, there are many people who can come into the church and who can have sort of a superficial experience of salvation, who can um, have sort of a superficial sort of uh, understanding that Jesus Christ is the answer to their problems. And then uh, what, they, what they see eventually is that all of a sudden a big problem comes in their life, the cares, uh, cares of the world, some difficulty hap uh, happens in their life, and all of a sudden uh, they... They come to see God didn't do what I wanted him to do. I thought that if I would come and be a Christian, that everything in my life would get better, that things would be easier, uh, that uh, I wouldn't have to struggle financially anymore, that my marriage would get fixed, or you know that uh, somehow everything was going to be better. And so they they have superficially come to know come to Christ, but they come to Christ for all the wrong reasons. Or maybe they come to Christ because they want to have fire insurance, for instance. Maybe they think that. Um, you know, I feel terrified of hell every single night, and I don't want to, uh, I, I believe hell is a real place, and I don't want to go there. Uh, and I want God to save me from hell, but I don't necessarily want him to save me from my sins. I don't want him to be the Lord of my life. I don't want to have to serve him or have to follow him. I don't want to have to do what he says, but I really don't, I really want to get, I, I really want to feel not so afraid of death anymore. That would be a nice thing, because no one likes to be afraid of death, and no one likes to uh, be afraid of judgment. Uh, so... Uh, I'm going to accept him into my heart and ask him to save me from hell, but I really don't want a relationship with him. And so there's many different people that can come to Christ for the wrong reasons, attach themselves to a body of believers for the wrong reasons. Uh, and then from the outside, they look like believers. They sound like believers. They act like believers. Uh, uh, but then after, you know, time passes, you see that, hey, wait a minute, you know, um, they're addicted to pornography. They're looking at pornography every day of the week, and now they're um, 
wanting nothing to do with the church or angry with the church or causing division with the church. Uh, all of a sudden, you, you wake up and they haven't been there for four months and uh, you come and you talk, talk to them about it and they're telling you that they're very upset that the church didn't do everything that they wanted them to do and um, you know Christ didn't do the things that they wanted them to do. Well, what happened there? They, were they saved and then they lost their salvation? Well, no, they just they look like Christians for a time. And that's why they, the author of Hebrews gives us passages like this uh, to warn us against presuming on God's grace, to warn us against the dangers of sin. Because oftentimes you, you, you have more confidence that the person you're dealing with is a Christian based on the longer pattern of their life. So the, the central message, the central warning that you see here is don't toy around with sin. And God uses this warning to keep believers eternally secure, if you understand what I'm saying. So I, I believe that we have passages like this that are given as a means to help believers persevere in the Christian life. And all true believers will persevere to the end. That's the consistent teaching of Scripture. So God ultimately knows before the foundation of the world who, who um, are his. God ultimately knows uh, who, I mean, he, God's not taken by surprise. God's not taken by shock. He knows uh, from the foundation of the world who will uh, come to faith and repentance and uh, the good news of the gospel of Christ. He knows these things, and he uses means to accomplish his ends. So um, every single believer at some point, uh, you become a believer by being confronted with your own, the reality of your own sinfulness and being confronted with the good news of the gospel. So God uses means to accomplish his ends. So uh, before becoming a Christian, I was lost, right? Uh, God knew from the foundation of the world that one day I'd be, I'd be saved in history, in time, but he uses someone preaching the gospel to me and me responding to that in faith and repentance. In a similar way, he uses warning passages of Scripture to help remind believers of the danger of sin and these are means of grace that god gives us so that we see hey it's dangerous to toy with sin at any level uh, i need to be completely sold out to the lordship of christ in all areas of my life and if god's inside of me he's going to be working within me a desire to know more about him every day to move on to maturity to learn about things like melchizedek for instance and uh to desire to understand uh, the Bible, to desire to put to death the deeds of the flesh, these things are going to be working in me because God's seed remains in me. So uh, I think that's probably the best way to understand what's happening in this passage itself. Now, um, as I've said, there's two realities. Uh, if you're dealing with uh, maybe an immature Christian, there's two realities. One, they're immature because maybe they're not a Christian. Two, they might have grown complacent and need to be admonished. Now, in the case of the Hebrews, the situation appears to be the latter. Uh, they may have grown complacent and need to be warned. So, um, in that way, uh, the author of Hebrews is quick to come along after his warning and give them comfort. So, uh, Hebrews 6 9 says, Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. So, um, God is not and just so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown in his name in serving the saints as you still do. So there's, there's clearly evidence that for perhaps the majority of the, uh, the Hebrews there, that uh, there's evidence of God being at work in their lives. 
even though he's uh, speaking of this strong warning that they need to take seriously, in their, in, in, in their specific case, he's fairly confident that uh, there's better things in store for the believers, things that belong to uh, salvation. So what we, what we learn is that the more we mature in the Christian life, the greater assurance of salvation that we have. So there's two types of assurance that are given in the scripture. There's what's called subjective assurance and objective assurance. And so what the author of Hebrews is going to do is he's going to start out talking about subjective assurance, and then he's going to move on to objective assurance. And I'm going to explain both of those things. So uh, subjective insurance, uh, uh, not insurance, assurance. Uh, subjective assurance uh, involves looking at the fruit of a person's life. So I think I passed over Hebrews 6, 7 through 8. But let's read that, and I'll use that to explain the importance of looking at the fruit of a Christian's life. So Hebrews 6, 7 says, For the land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God, but if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. So when God plants a uh, crop, for instance, it's going to pr- produce fruit. But the devil also plants his own crops, and they uh, produce tares. So when we look at the fruit of a Christian's life, we can often have some way of telling whether or not this person has been planted by God or has he been planted by Satan, for instance. So when you look at a person's fruit, uh, you, a good man out of a good treasure of a good heart brings forth good, correct? So that's what the scripture says. A good man out of a good treasure of a good heart brings forth good. An evil man out of the evil treasure of an evil heart brings forth evil. So when you look at a person's life, uh, the scriptures would say the works of the flesh are manifest, right? Uh, the works of the flesh are apparent. When you see the works of the flesh, it, there's a high probability that if these things characterize a person, you're dealing with a non-believer. If you see the fruit of the Spirit, right, singular, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, uh, meekness, kindness, faithfulness, self-control. If you see the fruit of the Spirit at work in the life of a believer, you have uh, more confidence that you're probably dealing with a believer at that point. So um, now that's true when we look at when we look around at others who are around us, but that's also true for us. So uh, you just read a, first, a book like First John. Kevin preached through First John a few months ago. Uh, you, there's different tests that the book of 1 John gives us in order that we can know that we have eternal life. So how do you know that you have eternal life? Well, 1 John says if you keep his commandments. How do you know that you have eternal life? If you love the brethren, if you love God's word, if you love God's people, if you're keeping God's commandments. Those are subjective means that are given to you so that you might have assurance that God indeed is at work inside of you. So... Um, if the creator of the universe has come to live inside of you, you will be different. You must be different uh, because God's seed remains in you. And as John says, you cannot keep on sinning because God's seed re- abides in you. So these are sub- what, what are called subjective means of assurance. Why are they called subjective? Well, because it's hard to tell. I mean, how, I mean at what level of uh, uh, obedience or what level of love for God's word or what level of love for God's people... I mean, if, I, if my whole assurance is based on these subjective means, well, what level do I need to get to before I can be assured, right? So uh, at some point, uh, I think the, the, you say, 
Obviously, if God began a good work in you, there should be some evidence of it. But I might not all the time know how if I'm evaluating that ev- evidence correctly. And so as you read First John, for instance, he says, if your heart condemns you, God's greater than your heart and he knows all things. So uh, subjective assurance of your salvation isn't the last w- uh, word. There's also objective assurance. And, and we see that in Hebrews six thirteen through the end of the chapter. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to score, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. Uh, then the author of Hebrews explains, For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in their disputes an oath is uh, final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, um, that's another way of describing Christians, the heirs of the promise uh, who are uh, joint heirs along with Christ, who are Abraham's seed, uh, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So, as I've said, uh, subjective assurance is uh, based on the fruit that God is producing in a Christian's life, but ob- objective assurance is based on the promises of God. So what you see here in this uh, last big section of Hebrews 6 is a big, long description of the objective assurance that we have on the basis of, what, of God's promises. So God has promised to bless a fallen world through the offspring of Abraham. That's Genesis 12.3. Uh, the Abrahamic covenant. God has promised to bless a fallen world through the offspring of Abraham. And we need to understand that God is going to be faithful to his promises. So it's impossible for God to lie. If God says he's going to do something, he's going to do something. Now, most of the time when we, uh, I don't know that we do this anymore, but uh, the Jews, when they wanted to uh, really give you confidence that they were going to follow through with their word they'd swear by something so maybe they swear by the temple or they swear by the gold of the temple or uh, if they're really serious they'll swear by heaven itself or god's throne or uh, there's different ways that they're swearing but god in this instance he he has no one greater to swear by than himself right so uh, if god wants to confirm a promise that he has made to us he's he, he doesn't he can't swear by the temple or the gold <laughs> It's in the temple. Uh, he, can, he, he swears by his own name, you understand? So uh, what it says is, uh, verse 17, when God decided to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he uh, guaranteed it with an oath. So he's, uh, you know, he can't swear by anything greater than himself. Uh, he swears by an oath, uh, you know, on the basis of his own name and his own character. So God promises to save all those who repent of their sins and believe in the good news of the gospel of grace. God promises to objectively save all those who place their trust in Abraham's seed, who is Christ. So in this instance, if uh, we have two different ways to gain assurance in the Christian life. One is by looking at the fruit that God is producing in our life. That should give us confidence. Uh, but uh, more foundational and fundamental, we... we Trust that what God says is true. In Romans um, 10.9. Just turn to Romans 
God says, uh, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So part of having assurance of your salvation is simply believing that what God says is true. God says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So what does it mean to confess that Jesus is Lord? It means to uh, acknowledge that Jesus is the rightful Lord of creation. If God made me, I don't belong to me. I, I belong to God. Jesus is Lord. Regardless of whether or not I want to admit that, he actually is Lord. And and salvation involves me coming to declare to him, you are Lord. That is who you are. I need you to fundamentally change my heart. Give me a new heart. Take away my heart of stone. Give me a heart of flesh. Help me to repent of my sins and follow you. Um, Help me to t- repent of my sins, take up my cross, and follow you. And I believe that you came to this world to save sinners. I believe that you came to this world uh, loving sinful humanity and rebellion against you. You loved me even when I was your enemy. You loved me when I hated you. You loved me when I was uh, spitting in your face, doing the things that are displeasing to you, hating you, n- wanting nothing to do with you. You loved me, and you sent your son to die for me uh, on, on my behalf. And if I just acknowledge, if I repent of my sins, and if I put my faith and my trust in you and, uh, the, and acknowledge your lordship over my life, you will save me. That's what God's word says. So as you're thinking through the way that this passage works, I do think that we all need to have a sobering reminder of the danger of sin. We need to remember that there will be many people in the last day who are self-deceived. And I think we need to examine ourselves to see is there evidence in my life that um, God is at work inside of me. So that, that ought to give me subjective assurance. There's also, um, am I trusting in Christ right now, today, today, when I hear his voice? Do I trust in Christ as my only hope of eternal life? Do I trust that he is a- more than able to do what he promises to do? Do I, do I have my firm hope fixed in the sacrificial death on the cross on my behalf. And so if you're here today, if you struggle with assurance, if if as I'm speaking of some of these things, your heart is convicting you, uh, you, there are areas of sin sin in your life that you're not dealing with, I encourage you to deal with them. I encourage you to um, repent of your sins, to beg beg the Lord to change your heart, to to change your desires. I would hate to know that there's anyone in here who does not have assurance of their salvation. Uh, And I know that there's many, many people here today who could talk to you and help you uh, deal with that. Now, as I, I'm going to go ahead and close this today with prayer. And then uh, Pastor Kevin will be the next person you hear. And he's going to talk, come up and talk to you about how you can respond to the message that you've just heard. But let's, uh, let's close our time in a word of prayer. Lord, we we thank you for the privilege it is to study your word, to think through the great truths of uh, scripture that you've given us. Lord, we know that that there are many people who in the last day will be self-deceived. And we we beg you uh, and pray, Lord, that we would not be numbered among them, Lord. Uh, We pray that you help us all here today to uh, be striving uh, running the race with endurance, uh, striving to lay hold of eternal life, Lord, trusting in the promises that you made, Lord, that you have come to save the guilty, Lord. pray that you would help no one in here to trust in their own righteousness or trust in their own works or 
uh, for hope of eternal life, for the trust in the good news of the gospel that you have provided for us. Lord, we thank you for our time here today. We thank you for the opportunity we have to look at your word, to think about you and uh, the truths that you have given us, Lord. We thank you for the work of salvation that I know that you've accomplished in many of our lives that we do not deserve and we do not earn, Lord. Uh, we thank you for all you do. Thank you for Cherokee Baptist Church, Lord, and I pray that you uh, bless our uh, days following today. In your son's name I pray, amen.